and draw your attention back to Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. We'll read 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17. Grace, would you go up in the side pocket and grab my glasses for me? Harder and harder as I get old. It's better. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you today and we, we praise you. We seek to honor and glorify you. in who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we ask that our worship would be acceptable to you this morning. Lord, that you would fill our hearts with awe and wonder as we look to your word, as we seek to see what you would have us to to see from your word here this morning. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be given grace here this morning, Lord, and for, for every day of our lives to to glorify you, to put off the old man. Lord, to put on the new. Lord, that we would live in strength as as children of God. That we would bear a likeness to our Savior. Lord, this world needs the light of your truth. This world needs to be pointed to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work in us such that you would use us as a means to proclaim your truth and that we might be 
salt and light to this world. Thank you for your word, Lord. Speak to us through it this morning. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. We come to uh, this part of the epistle this morning. I think it's, uh, it's a difficult portion of, of Scripture, at least for me, because it tends to hurt my pride. Makes me look at my own life and see how far I fall short of being and doing that which Christ would have me to be and what He would have me to do. Paul has some meat for us to chew on this morning. Difficult things that we must understand and put into practice as children of God, led by our head, which is Christ. We have to constantly be thinking about who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. It's a constant process. We're we're not our own. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price and are to glorify God in our bodies, in our bodies here. Paul gets to the heart of this in the text here this morning. We are to flee from that which we were, from that which the flesh, the world, and the devil would like to see us still be. So Paul has something to say to us this morning as we start looking at this passage in Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul has something to say to us this morning that he's been led by the Spirit of God to write in this epistle to the Ephesians. There's something he's going to stress to them, and he's going to urge them, he's going to encourage them and exhort them to do something. He's going to cover this both in a negative form and a positive form. He's going to say, don't do this. And at the same time, do this. There's a a negative and a positive form in what he is going to tell us this morning. But he begins here with, now this I say. Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is speaking to us. And he has something to tell us here in this letter. He's already laid out in this epistle his authority to speak to us in this manner. Has he not? If we looked back at Ephesians 1.1, the very start of this letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Speaking to his authority. This is nothing new. We look through almost all of Paul's epistles and it is littered with this throughout his epistles. In Romans 1.1, He starts that epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And in 1 Corinthians, he does much the same. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And this epistle that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, months, uh, has this running all through it. We won't take time to look at each one as as we went through and we made mention of them as we went through, but just recall to your mind Paul's defense of the message given to him. 
He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's called by the Lord. He's given insight from the Lord. He's a minister, a minister of the mysteries of God hidden for ages. And who is it for? It's for the sake of us, for the sake of the Gentiles. In our most recent messages, we've looked at the gift given to each of the body and specifically to the church. And what were those, those gifts, those offices given to the church? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the, 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 the shepherds or the pastors and teachers. Well, Paul is an apostle. He is one of those select few who was given a special gift, a special call by Christ Jesus himself in the, the flesh. This is Paul. He's, now I say to you. This is the one who has something to say to us. This is the one who is writing this epistle to the Ephesians. And remember that this is most likely a letter that was, that was meant for circulation. So he wrote it to the Ephesians. And then they would copy it and give it to other churches around. And by the providence and the power of God, it's been preserved for us. So that this epistle is not just for the Ephesians, not just for those surrounding Ephesus, but also for us today in the church. But Paul doesn't even stop there with his authority. It would be enough if he did, but he doesn't stop there. He goes further and he calls for and testifies by an authority which is eminently higher than that of his own. He says he testifies in the Lord. Now I say, this I say, and testify in the Lord. Paul is speaking on behalf and under the authority of the Lord of glory. And his authority is over all things, without exception. Christ said in Matthew 28, 18, right before he ascended, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. And in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. All things. Paul has pointed to this authority of Christ over and over again in this epistle. Like he's pointed to his own authority given him by our Lord for the ministry that Paul has been given. He also points to the authority that is above him, whereby he's been called. And to the church, Christ has specific authority. They've been bought by his blood. And he's the one in whom all things are united in heaven and on earth. He is seated at the right hand in glory, far above all rule and power, above every name in all ages. That is everything. And the Father has placed all things under His feet and given Him to be the head over all things concerning the church. 
This must be something important that Paul has to tell us this morning. Something that is vital to our well-being and to the work of the church. Paul makes sure we have ample consideration as to who it is that is saying something to us. It's the Apostle Paul who is testifying by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been granted the authority from Christ to exhort us and to he appeals to us as one having in Christ this authority. And he appeals to the one that has all authority. And then he says to the Ephesians that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We have been redeemed, we have been called, we have been united together. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, He's through all, and He is in all. You've been given a gift gifted by Christ, who is gifted to the church so that all would be equipped for the work of the ministry. That all, each and every member of the body of Christ, working properly and in order, makes the body grow and builds the body up. And Paul says, now, in light of that, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility, in the emptiness, in the vanity of their minds. The Gentiles walk, they have their manner of living as ignorant and unconverted, godless idolaters. That's the way the Gentiles walk, in the emptiness, the vanity, the futility of their minds. Matthew Henry says that the Gentiles... He says, who are wholly guided by an understanding employed about vain things. Now, he doesn't mean by vain, prideful things. He means by that what, what Solomon meant in Ecclesiastes of vanity, emptiness, futility, meaninglessness who are wholly guided by an understanding employed about vain things, their idols and their worldly possession, things which are of no way profitable to their souls and which will deceive their expectations. That's the mind of the Gentiles. Hendrickson says, The apostle emphasizes a vitally or very important point, namely, that all those endeavors which the Gentiles put forth in order to attain happiness end in disappointment. Their life is one long series of mocked expectations. It is a pursuing and not achieving, a blossoming and not fruit bearing. It is a walk, a life of emptiness, futility of no meaning, of vanity. 
A life like that that's expressed by Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14, he said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. How are you going to catch the wind and hold it? Do you think about that when you read that passage in Ecclesiastes? How, how do I capture it? How do I chase after it? How do I hold on to it? Well, neither will anything lasting be accomplished walking as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. Paul then goes on to give us a picture of this walk and a way of life that he exhorts the Ephesians not to do. Don't live in this way. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 is where he does this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These Gentiles that he's speaking of here, that he says don't walk in their way, they don't have the light of Christ. And the whole of their understanding is completely darkened by sin. Since the fall, they have lived in darkness. They hate the light, which would, if they, if they could just see the light, would illumine their understanding and lead them into a way of life. But their minds are darkened. They're blind to this. They are alienated from God. To speak in words that we've already heard from the Apostle Paul in this letter, in this epistle to the Ephesians, they have no hope and are without God in the world. Is it any wonder that they walk in the futility of their minds? They're alienated from the God who gives life and meaning and purpose to life. No hope, no purpose, no insight that leads to anything lasting. Nothing that leads to everlasting life. You see why it's futility? You see why it's meaningless? And it's because of the ignorance that is in them, Paul says, the minds have been polluted. Their wills have been diseased due to the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts have become full of sin and corruption. They're stone hearts, hard hearts, hard and unmoving, dead in trespass and sins. They are like dead men walking. Is that not the picture that Paul gives us? In Ephesians 2, when he says, and you were dead in trespass and sins. This is a picture of dead men walking. Oh, they're up moving around, but they're dead. They're spiritually dead. And they have become, in verse 19, callous. Or as some translations put it, past feeling. This is a most dangerous place to be. 
and one that I believe adequately captures what has happened to those who are darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance due to their hard-heartedness, if left unrestrained by God, they will go past the point of feeling. That's what is meant by this callousness, that they're callous. They will become callous to their very conscience. This is a most dangerous place to be, and I'm afraid a place where we find our society in at this very present time. Look at what's being celebrated this month. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, not only on display, but it's celebrated. Pride Month. What has happened to lead to this? Exactly what Paul says here in Ephesians to his listeners. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of hearts, they have become callous. They have become past the point of feeling and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Their conscience is no longer feeling the wrongs and is no, they're no longer pricked by their conscience. They are past feeling. They are calloused. Do you understand? What, what is it that calluses do on our hands from hard work? When we first start, it bleeds, Right? We have a blister and it opens up and it bleeds. But over time, what happens? A callus forms. And there's no feeling there. You don't get pricked by things. You often don't get splinters there because it's so hard that nothing penetrates past that point of the callus. That's what Paul is getting to here. Their conscience is past the point that they are restrained from their evil desires. They call good evil and evil good. They are no longer ashamed, no longer hiding their evil. It is done in the day, in public, right out in front of everything, and it's not only done, it's celebrated. They have completely abandoned themselves to sin. Unrestrained. Their hearts set about on to, to gratify the desires of the flesh. Sinful lust, unfeeling to that of outside influence and ruled by their evil passions. This is the description of what we find in Romans 1. Look with me at Romans 1. Starting with verse 21. <clears throat> For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Does that sound familiar? Futility of the minds. They became futile 
in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, this is the second time he says this here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Third time, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless, they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They celebrate these things. And our society has a whole month set aside to celebrate the unrighteousness of these things. Unholiness, unrighteousness, blasphemy of God's created order. They are darkened in their understanding, Paul says in our text. Alienated. From the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. God has given them up and lifted His restraining hand and then they give themselves up willfully. Let me take a brief aside for a moment and seek to show the difference between those who have become callous and the reality of the life of a Christian. We don't believe that Christians here in this world are perfect and sinless. Anything that teaches that is contrary to the Scripture. But there are those who are within what is referred to as the Christian faith, who would believe that there is a sinlessness that is attained in this life after regeneration. We don't believe this. One day, we will be perfect and glorified. 
but as long as we're here, we will daily struggle with the remainders of indwelling sin. Christians may and they do fall into all types of sin. And all of us have these sin issues that we struggle with, sometimes on a daily basis. But here it is that we as Christians should be most thankful for the chastening of the Lord and conviction of the sin that leads to repentance. I would have us to understand that a Christian is not altogether callous when it comes to these things. They will not be past feeling for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ indwells the believer and convicts them of the sin in their life and brings them to sorrow over that sin for which Jesus Christ has suffered, bled, and died. Conviction of sin is a great gift to the redeemed of the Lord to draw us back to the feet of our Savior and to lead us to hate the sin that plagues us. And by the power of the Spirit to cause us to flee from that sin. We should be fearful if we are not feeling the conviction of sin though. And this is what Paul is warning about and telling us that we must not walk like those who are lost. Because we are Christ's and we have been given the Spirit who dwells within us. Be thankful for conviction. As an example of this, let's look at the life of David, just briefly. David committed adultery and murder. Even as the chosen of the Lord, he did these things. And for a brief time, even, was somewhat callous about the sin that he had committed. You remember there in 2 Samuel 12, God sent Nathan the prophet before David. Nathan told David a story, didn't he? Told him a story about a rich man and a poor man. And this poor man had a lamb. And it was like a member of his family. And the rich man had a, a person visit. And instead of taking of his own, he went and he stole from that poor man to feed his, his visitor. And when Nathan told David this story, David was filled with wrath, raged, and said, that man is deserving of death. But God used Nathan to bring about repentance in David. When he said that, Nathan looked at David and he said, you are the man. You are the man. And out of that, we have one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance and sorrow over sin ever written in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation." and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Brokenness over sin. The conviction of sin is a precious gift to the children of God. But it's not present in those who Paul is telling us not to walk like. They are callous. They are past feeling. Paul goes on then to say why we must no longer walk in this way and how we overcome this fleshly desire to live this way. In verse 20 he says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Here then is the difference, is it not? The Christian has learned Christ. Here is one of the apostles' contrasts that he seems to be so fond of. It is all through his epistles, and especially through Ephesians. He will contrast, he will have a statement, and then he'll say, but, but, this is not how you learned Christ. There's a difference between the way that the Gentiles walk and the way that the Christians walk. And what is that difference? It is the learning of Christ. There is a large gulf between knowing about something or someone and knowing someone. I believe we've talked about this before, uh, but there's there's a saying that goes something to this effect, don't ever meet your heroes, they'll disappoint you. Why is that? Well, our heroes we know something about. But if we meet them and we get to know them, they will disappoint us because there's a difference between knowing something about them and knowing them. There's a great difference in that. We can know a lot about people and really not know them at all. There are many who know about Christ yet know nothing of them. I think Dad or I have probably mentioned before a man that lived next to us in Livingston, Montana. His name was Peter Saran. 
Peter has passed on to an, into eternity. And I hope that he came to know Christ. But he had a great knowledge about Christ. He didn't believe in Christ. He had a great knowledge about the Bible. But he didn't believe the Bible. He would come and talk to Dad all the time about the things of the Bible, about Jesus. But he didn't know Jesus. He knew it all here. But life had never been given to him. That heart of flesh had never been removed. Excuse me, the heart of stone had never been removed and replaced with the heart of flesh. He had all the head knowledge about him. But up until the time we left Montana, did not know him. This is why the Puritans spent so much time talking about experiential or experimental living, experiential theology, experiential living. That's what knowing in the biblical sense is all about. It isn't knowing about something. It's experiencing it. It's, it's living it. It's being immersed in it. It's a life-changing knowledge. And in reality, it is in God giving life that allows us to have this knowledge of Christ. Not knowledge about Christ, but knowledge of Christ. Charles Hodge says this, To learn Christ does not mean merely to learn His doctrines, but to attain the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God. God in our nature, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and life. Anyone who has thus learned Christ cannot live in darkness and sin. Such knowledge is in its very nature light. Where it enters, Hodge says, the mind is irradiated, refined, and purified. I would add this, that this is the difference in life and death. To know Christ in the way that Paul is speaking about in this passage is to have life. It's to be a new creation. Until the new birth, no one can know Christ. They can know a lot about Christ. But until they're born again, they are unable to know Christ. Isn't this what Jesus Himself was teaching Nicodemus in John 3? Before we have probably the most well-known verse to anyone in the world from the Bible... It's all within the context of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. You've got to be given life. That is to know Christ in the way that Paul is dealing with this here in this passage. Paul says then in Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Basically... What he is saying is that if you have learned Christ, then he is sure 
that you have heard about him and you have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That you have come to know that Jesus himself is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Paul then leads us to verse 22 where he exhorts us to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He is leading us once again to a contrast with verse 23 and 24 which reads, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says to put off your old self or to put off the old man, as some translations put it. And I kind of like that translation a little bit better. Put off the old man. Put off the old man who walks like the Gentiles walk. Put that man off. That former manner in in which you once lived calling us back to what he's already told us and painted for us about the life of these Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, the way that they once walked. Of the former way of life that belonged to them. They lived corrupt lives in sin, and isn't that the case that all of us were in? Put off that old man. It's it's like taking, he's he's making a, a reference kind of to a garment. Take that garment, that old man off. Cast it to the side and take the new man and put it on and live in that. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self or the new man who has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off that old garment. Put on the new. You are no longer as children of God, as those who have learned Christ, to walk around in that sinful garment that has been defiled by lust, greed, idolatry, hate, malice, and any other manner of sin. We read earlier from Colossians a whole long list of those things that we are to put off those things. And put on something totally different. Something totally new. We've been given a new garment. A garment we read about in in Revelation that's white. Why is it white? It's been dipped in the blood of Jesus Christ. And made white. Bright. Holy. I believe the language here also leads us to consider something that is very important for us to understand about the old man and the new man. And I think that's why I like that translation. This old self, this old man, in whom the image of God has been marred by sin, is a picture back to what I believe is Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image, in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, after our likeness. So God created man in His own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man was made. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and they were truly made in the image of God. They were able to commune with him. Something very different from any other creature. This relationship that they had with God Almighty, with the Creator, communing with Him to be in His presence, but sin marred that image. It destroyed that image of, image of God that they were made in. It broke the communion and the relationship that man had with God. Man became ruled by a sinful nature, a sinful heart, and they hid from God. They were fearful of God. To use the language that Paul has already described for us in Ephesians, they were alienated from God. And this nature we all inherited from Adam. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But there is a new Adam, if you will. Jesus Christ, as the one who has come to give life and will make people right with God. Heal that which is broken, who will make us new creatures, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what Paul is telling us here. It is this new creation which Christ has made us, this, this new man, this new self, which has brought us out of the emptiness and the futility that is marked in the life of the Gentile mind which Paul has been speaking about. You've been given a new life, therefore put on the new man. Put on Jesus Christ. The old man is that which is inherited from Adam. The new man is that which is inherited by Christ. Put off the old. Put on Jesus Christ. Christ has given you a new garment, a new life, a new self, a new man. Put it on and walk in it. Walk in Christ. You learned Him. You have learned Christ Jesus. Now walk in Him. Walk in this new life renewed by, in the spirit of your minds, not according to sin, but according to true righteousness and holiness. He is saying, die to the old man. Die to the old man. Mortify that old nature. Put it to death every day. Die to the old man. Romans 13.12 tells us, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness. Take off the old man. Cast it off. And put on the armor of light. Put on the new man. And he says a couple of verses later, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hodge says we are to be changed. 
and not merely our acts. We are to crucify ourselves. The original, original principle of evil is not destroyed in regeneration, but it is to be daily mortified in the conflicts of a whole new life. Paul is exhorting the Ephesians here, these Christians, to be constantly working to put off the old man, to put the old man to death and put on the new. Grace, the grace of God. We read about the grace all through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament. Grace has restored what sin had cast into absolute and utter chaos. Grace has restored that. Grace clothes us with Christ's righteousness and holiness. What once was ruined and unbefitting to be in the presence of God has now been made able by this change, by this new creation of a new man in Christ Jesus. We are now able, what does Ephesians tell us? We are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now able to be brought into the presence of God, a holy God who hates sin. Why? Because Christ has given us and made us into a new creation. Put off the old man, put on the new. Both of these things, the putting off and the putting on, are necessary for us. They are both needed. Both must be done. Christ said something in Luke 9. In Luke 9.23, He said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Put off the old man. And take up his cross daily and follow Me. Put off the old man. Deny yourself. That which does those fleshly desires, those remainders of indwelling sin, put them off and daily take up the cross. Put on the new man and follow him. Would that God would grant us more grace that we should always be about this work of putting off the old man and putting on the new. This is a difficult thing. It's not something that is done without effort and grace and strength from God. But it is what we must do. The professing church is too often in the old garment. Too often in the old man. We as Christians are too often putting on the old man putting on the old self. This is easy to be this way, isn't it? It's easy to live like that. No effort involved in it. Easy to go with the flow, just to float on the stream along with the rest of the world. It's easy. To be clothed in the new man, though, to put that on every day makes us subject to ridicule. Makes living in the world difficult, uncomfortable, You can't blend in 
in the new man in the world. It's easy to harden the heart. It's easy to give in to sensuality and impurity. It's easy to live as the world lives and to align ourselves with the ways of the world. But Paul makes a contrast. That is not the way we learned Christ. Not learned Christ like this. Christ didn't come to blend in. Christ didn't come to support the world in its sinful ways. Came to redeem a people out of sin. Out of the world. Out of futility. Out of vanity. Out of meaninglessness. To call a world to repent. That's why He came. He came to make a dying people new creatures. With new desires. To give hope to build His church for declaring these very things and gifting each member, each and every one of the body of Christ with a gift to be used in the ministry. To put on the new that they might be about the work of the ministry. As I was reading in one of the commentaries, Ian Hamilton And his commentary says, The world needs to see and to hear from a renewed Christian church. From a church made alive. A church freshly invaded by the power, grace, glory, and truth of the gospel. Isn't that a church which is putting off the old man and putting on the new? He said, The world is the way it is Not because of a lack of education or a failure in social manners, but because people harden their hearts against God. The fundamental problem in every society is theological and spiritual. The fundamental problem in every society is theological and spiritual. The Bible has a radical diagnosis of the ills that afflict our world. Humanity lives in active, willful rebellion against God. This is why the world's greatest need is the heart and life-renewing power of the gospel of Christ. The human, excuse me, the heart of the human problem truly is the problem of the human heart. It is this biblical truth that perhaps more than any other deeply offends unbelievers. But sin is not a tumor that can be cut out. It is a deadly disease that can only be remedied if we become a new creation. It's true, isn't it? Only then, when we put off the old man and put on the new, and only when clothed in the new, are we able to fulfill that which Christ has sent His church to do in this world, to go and make disciples of all nations. To plead with sinners to repent of sin and to turn to Christ 
to preach Christ and Him crucified and unashamedly in defiance of the world's hate and ridicule, to preach and proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only, the one and only substitute for sin. Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. May God grant us to be about this work, to put off the old man, to be clothed in the new man, that we might be about the work that Christ has sent us into this world to do and to point others to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word that You've brought before us this morning. We thank You for giving us Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the Holy Spirit who gives us discernment and wisdom in these things. Pray, Lord, that You'd just uh, cause us to meditate on this throughout the week. Lord, help us to daily take up the cross and follow Christ. Help us to mortify the flesh. Help us to put to death those fleshly desires that we have. And help us to put on the new man. In the image of Christ, in the image of a God, in true righteousness and holiness. Give us grace, Lord. We beg of you grace. Give us strength. Give us boldness to proclaim your truth. We thank you and pray that you'd be with us the remainder of this day in the fellowship that we have. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.